As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we got a lot going on today, man. How excited are you for three more nights of the Republican National Convention? I I, um, <laughs> I, I don't even know what, how to... I, I, I admit I didn't watch last night. I figured I could get the highlights on uh, online, which I did. Saw some very uplifting speeches about the, the better America coming from there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was profoundly negative and redundant. But today's show is not. Uh, We have a lot going on. We're going to talk about the poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We'll talk about some of the foreign policy segments from the RNC, all the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, There is some great news out there about efforts to eradicate polio. We'll talk about an update on the protests in Belarus, how the State Department is promoting bigotry, uh, a military coup in Mali, police brutality, and some China news. And then Ben, you did the interview this week. Uh, it is focused on Brazil. Tell everybody why they would be crazy to skip this one. Yeah, Tommy, I spoke to Tabitha Amaral, who is really extraordinary. She's in her 20s, uh, but was elected overwhelmingly to serve in the Brazilian Congress, the Brazilian Parliament, and is really a, a, an important young rising voice. And we talked about Bolsonaro, his authoritarian, well, beyond tendencies, his affinity for Trump why their COVID response has been, you know, as disastrous as ours, uh, which is not coincidental to how he's like Trump, um, but how he's also gotten some support for his COVID response. So if you want to know what's going on in Brazil and you want to hear from one of the more inspiring young political leaders around the world, I'd check it out. Absolutely check that out. Also, Ben, uh, a new episode of Missing America is out now. Can you give the people a little preview of what they'll learn today about authoritarianism? Because it's another great episode. Yeah, and in a way, I mean, this is as important as any of the episodes because it's about China, which is, you know, the as important a subject as there is in the world. And we look at, you know, what is the China model? Uh, what is the kind of techno-totalitarian model that they're building? We hear about how they're spreading that influence around the world. We hear from some very interesting Africans about how China has been asserting influence in Africa, what that looks like, what is attractive about it relative to America, particularly an American president who said that Africans come from shithole countries. Um, and then we hear from Hong Kong protesters, and we kind of tell the story of the Hong Kong protests through the experiences of a couple of protesters the Hong Kong bureau chief of the Times. You really get, I think, the on-the-ground perspective that Americans don't always get about Hong Kong. And then we talk about, well, what do we do about it? (laughs) And we hear from people like Jake Sullivan, Jeff Prescott, who was Biden's deputy national security advisor, Sam Power, you know, people who are in a position to do something about it if Biden wins the election. So this this is a very rich episode, and I hope people check it out. It's a great episode. Uh, And if you want even more authoritarianism, Come hate watch the RNC with us here at Crooked yeah. Media. Yeah. Uh, we've been live streaming the RNC uh, with as much vicious commentary as we can muster on our, our group thread. It's a lot of fun, actually. Go to crooked.com slash convention or subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash crooked media. Smash that subscribe button. Make Elijah happy. Make Dan Pfeiffer a YouTube star, as we all knew uh, would be his destiny when we met him back in 2007. Okay, Ben, let's start in Russia because um, last 
Last week, Russian opposition leader uh, and prominent Putin critic Alexei Navalny became seriously ill. He was on a flight from Siberia to Moscow. And, and, and doctors believe this was just the latest example of a Putin opponent uh, being poisoned. So Navalny's spokeswoman said that he got sick after drinking tea at the airport in Siberia. After two days of wrangling with Russian authorities, Navalny was finally transferred to Berlin, Germany on Saturday morning for treatment and testing. Navalny's supporters think that Russian authorities actually delayed his transfer in the hope that the poison would exit his system and I guess become untraceable. Uh, Russian doctors who first treated him tried to claim just absurdly that Navalny was suffering from low blood sugar. Uh, German doctors with him now say they believe he was poisoned with a chemical that interferes with the nervous system that can be found in chemical weapons. So this is a huge deal, Ben. Uh, I was thinking maybe we divide it into a couple parts. So maybe just start with like who Alexei Navalny is. Uh, you know, you know him better than me, Ben, but you know, I think maybe the simplest way to describe him is as an anti-corruption activist in a country where fighting corruption is incredibly dangerous. Uh, Navalny has said that Putin's political party is for crooks and thieves who are, quote, sucking the blood out of Russia. But he didn't just like sling these accusations. He documented and publicized corruption by some of the most powerful people in Russia. For example, in 2017, Navalny released a report about how then-Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev used a network of trusts and charities and offshore companies to disguise his ownership in these like massive yachts, mansions, an Italian vineyard. The list goes on and on. You know, Ben, you and I have talked on the show about how much better Obama uh, and Medvedev got along, and frankly, the U.S. and Russia got along at that time uh, when Medvedev was in charge. But this report makes clear that he was on the take, man. He was acquiring massive wealth through his position. Uh, the report includes, you know, YouTube links to drone flyovers of Medvedev's 45,000 square foot ski chalet in Sochi, the compound he has in Tuscany. Uh, so Navalny rose to prominence in 2008 as a blogger. He led major protests in 2011. He was been thrown in jail multiple times, uh, once for the bullshit charge of obstructing police. Um, so Ben, I know you've interviewed Navalny before. Uh, what do you think people should know about him or maybe this incident? Yeah, so um, as I continue to to violate spoiler alerts uh, on my my book, which someday will come out, um, I, I did spend some time talking to Navalny for for my book, and I, you know, really liked him. He's a very charismatic guy. Um, you know, just to 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 give a bit of a background on how he became this figure, it's pretty fascinating. He had been involved in politics, and then he made the decision to kind of leave traditional political party opposition and become essentially an anti-corruption blogger. Uh, around 2008 or so. And he was really innovative and he kind of doubled as an investigative journalist. Yeah. This is why he's such, yeah. a, such a unique figure. And what he did that was so ingenious is he bought a very small amount of shares in each of the major Russian oil companies and used the fact that he was a shareholder to start suing them <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to expose their corruption, to expose essentially that they were skimming literally tens of billions of dollars off the top to middlemen in terms of how they sold their oil, all to enrich basically Putin cronies. And, and this made him an overnight sensation, a celebrity. You know, millions of people watch his YouTube videos. He was writing a blog about corruption every day uh, and really galvanized Russian political opinion in a way that the opposition parties hadn't around this issue of corruption, that the corruption of Putin and his cronies is central to the Putin regime. And that made him a leader in those 2011 protests in Moscow. He ran for mayor of Moscow, and despite you know, all kinds of intimidation being kept off the, the airwaves, 
you know, he still, uh, you know, achieved a good vote total uh, in the mid 30s. And frankly, he thinks probably with some good reason that there was electoral fraud that drove his vote totals down and denied him the chance to, to, to win that election. Uh, and he's maintained this voice and he really is the leading opposition figure to Vladimir Putin in Russia, uh, the most potent opposition figure to Vladimir Putin, in part because he's not just the typical I, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but he's not, you know, your typical opposition figure. He's got this kind of unique persona. He's also, frankly, a little bit of a Russian nationalist himself. You know, he's not kind of a, a, a typical liberal. Um, he, he certainly supports a more democratic Russia, and, and we would certainly prefer Alexei Navalny being president. But that made him a more dangerous adversary. And so he's been detained and imprisoned a lot. When I interviewed him, we talked about when he was poisoned. He was poisoned once in prison. Yeah, he's been poisoned repeatedly. I probably should have mentioned that in the lead up, but there was a lot to cover. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, in the same kind of bullshit thing, he was poisoned, got very sick once, and the Russian authorities claimed that he had an allergic reaction. Um, and as he explained to me, he, he's never had allergies to anything. He's never had an allergic reaction. So he's a singular voice in Russia, an important voice, the most important opposition voice, the man who has done more to expose corruption than anything else, which is incredibly dangerous to Putin. And it's quite obvious what happened. I yeah, mean, because yeah. of that, they targeted him once again, and this time almost killed him. I, I, you know, he was put into a coma. Yeah. And so, first of all, if Ben is going to offer spoilers of his book, we all have to agree to pre-order it. That is the <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, ben, I'm glad you brought up this nationalism thing, because one criticism you hear of Navalny is that he was willing to speak at like ultra nationalist gatherings that featured far right speakers. There was racist speeches delivered. Some of them they were they were demagoguing immigrants, not from Navalny himself, but other speakers at, at these events. He also said that Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 was illegal, but that the territory quote now de facto belongs to Russia. Basically, he said he wouldn't return it if he became president. I don't mean to criticize a guy who was just poisoned, um, and I think his views on Crimea are complicated in some ways in that he was maybe intending to describe the reality on the ground as he sees it more than policy. But I also think it's trying, it's worth trying to understand who these people are, maybe warts and all, uh, so that we don't lionize them and that we understand them fully uh, as we support like the anti-corruption efforts and some of the things they're doing that are incredibly brave. Yeah, I, I, I talked to him about all this. And I have to say, I found him an incredibly appealing figure. Um, despite, you know, as you described, warts and all. Uh, on the far right thing, you know, what, what happens in Russia is that there are these annual marches, basically in opposition to Putin, and everybody shows up. Uh, the far right shows up, the far left shows up, everybody in between. And Navalny participated in this. A and look, he, he, you know, he's against Putin. He thinks that there's a corrupt regime that is stealing the resources of the Russian people. And you've seen this in other countries where oppositions are willing to just throw a big tent over everybody who's in opposition and, and cooperate to some extent and certainly to cooperate in street action. Kasich, Ilhan Omar. Yeah, well, no, in, in Hungary, there's a far right party that is a part of this opposition block, right? And I've talked to Hungarian politicians who are like, yeah, I can't wait to get into the parliament and vigorously debate these people. But right now we're in an existential situation. I don't think Navalny is a far right figure. You know, I think he's a guy who's, uh, you know, basically sees himself as single mindedly opposing the regime and its corruption. And on Crimea, you know, I think similarly, like it's complicated. But, you know, essentially, I think he he has serious problems with how Putin did what he did um, and the justifications that right. Putin used right. and the lying that Putin did. Um, but like a lot of Russians, uh, believes that Crimea, 
um, has this majority of, of Russian speakers is uh, should be seen as distinct from the rest of Ukraine. I don't agree with that view, but I, I, I don't think he necessarily believes that it was right to send in Russian troops and annex the place. Um, I do think, you know, he's, as you said, responding to political realities. And when I talked to him, it was about how do you have a more legal process potentially a, 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 a new referendum in Crimea with international observers to determine its fate. Again, that still, I think, would violate the U.S. position that you can't just redraw maps, right? Um, but yeah, but, the, but Tommy, uh, the, the fact that he has those views is what makes him a more dangerous <laughs> political opponent to Putin, because those views are, are pretty mainstream Russian views. And again, this is the danger of Navalny. He's got his finger on the weakest spot, the biggest political vulnerability for Putin, which is corru- his corruption. And he has a set of views that are not easy to categorize as, you know, a Trojan horse for U.S. or European influence. They're, they're mainstream Russian nationalist views, albeit c- wedded to a complete commitment to democracy and transparency. And he's very adamant about the need for a free press, for independent media, for free and fair elections, you know, so he would be a, a monumental improvement over Vladimir Putin. And he's one of the only figures in Russia that I think people could look at it and think, well, maybe that guy could be president of Russia someday. Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that Kasich or Ilhan Omar in any way extreme. <laughs> yeah, I was totally yeah. making a joke. Uh, ben, I should note that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo finally released a statement uh, about Navalny's uh, poisoning on August 25th, which is today as we're recording this. So we're a weekly podcast and we almost got to this subject faster than they did. But l- let's talk about just poison for a second, because Andrew Kramer at The New York Times did a, a really interesting deep dive into Russia's use of poison to murder or silence critics or, or political opponents. It, it, this has happened to investigative journalists, uh, prominent anti-government activists, opposition leaders, dissidents, defectors, including some who spied for other countries. Here's some of the stuff that they use to poison people. Uh, radioactive polonium-210, heavy metals, rare plant toxins, and nerve agents that can kill you just by touching them. Very fun stuff. Uh, former Ukrainian president, uh, Victor Yushchenko was fed a meal laced with dioxin, which is a chemical found in Agent Orange. Uh, That attack, which a lot of observers think was Russian-linked, it didn't kill him, but it horribly disfigured him. Um, So this Times piece talks about how the the former Soviet Union had secret research programs to develop these like tasteless, untraceable poisons. They tested them on prisoners at the time, which is really awful. The piece talks about how several activists were poisoned at airports or or given uh, substances in tea. So there's a pattern here. So Ben, just a couple thoughts. Like one, Again, just when Trump is asked to criticize Putin and he does his like weird whataboutism thing where he blames the U.S. for something, just everyone remember U.S. presidents don't uh, murder their domestic political opponents or, or journalists. Second, why do you think Russians use these weird a- exotic poisons? Like some of Putin's opponents just get shot or beaten to death or thrown out of uh, of windows. Like none of it is subtle. Why use some exotic substance to attack uh, uh, Sergei Skripal, the, the Russian military officer turned double agent for the UK or Navalny, when like everyone knows who was going after these guys and who did it? W- what are they hiding here? Right. And then in this specific case, like doctors think Navalny is going to survive this. So, you know, that's good news, obviously. Well, I think that the first of all, the the fact that it took this long for a statement to get out means that the statement is completely useless because the message that Vladimir Putin takes from the, that is that the United States doesn't give a shit, you know. And and what Mike Pompeo does, and he's done this on several occasions where Trump doesn't really 
want to do anything is he waits a few days then he puts out a statement so that later when he gets shit about it maybe when he's running for president in a few years he can say well i put out a statement but the message to the world is that we don't care and look in the time period that it took for them to put out the statement germany was able to organize a medevac for navalny to fly him from siberia to germany for medical treatment and demand an investigation all before the united states government could even say anything i think on poison I think what Putin wants to do is is intimidate and and control people. And there's some, you know, the, this widespread use of poison kind of sends a message to anybody. If you are considering speaking up against Vladimir Putin, you never know what cup of tea you drink, what meal you eat might ha- cause a horrific reaction and even kill you. And there's something very ominous and controlling about that, maybe even more so than the idea of someone kicking in your door and shooting you, right? This, this idea that they, they're everywhere. They, they, they're in your food. They're in your tea. I think he wants that impression out there. And it's kind of like MBS with Khashoggi. Putin doesn't care that everybody knows he did this, you know? And he'll deny it, but that's frankly bullshit. But they want it to be known that they poison oppositionists. They've done it in other countries. They've done it in the United Kingdom. There's, there's some people who believe they've done it in the United States in some murky cases. Um, and, and that's what he wants. He wants people to think that you're not safe anywhere in the world if you criticize Vladimir Putin. Um, and that is a, a chilling, chilling reality that the United States and the world has to deal with because we can't live in a world where you can just poison people anywhere with impunity if they criticize you. That that's a that's a dark future that, that we should all want to stand up against. Yeah, uh, agreed. Um, okay, uh, in case you didn't get enough fascism, let's talk about the RNC for a bit. There was some foreign policy focused uh, content last night, so uh, buckle up. I'm going to do this all in, in Kim Gilfoyle voice. So. On Monday, they aired a taped conversation with Trump and six Americans who the U.S. government had helped bring home after they'd been held hostage abroad. There was a U.S. Navy veteran who had been held in Iran. There was a man who had been held for two months in Syria, a pastor who had been held in Turkey for four years. Um, A few things about the discussion uh, that they taped and released that was just weird. First, Trump invited a couple named Joshua Holt and Terry Holt, who had been held in Venezuela. Trump never addressed Mrs. Holt at all. She was never allowed to speak in the segment, which was just bizarre. Um, Also, when Trump was talking to the guy who had been held hostage in Turkey for four years, Trump praised Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan, who was an authoritarian thug who just imprisoned this guy. Uh, Also, Trump ended the conversation about these horrifying experiences by saying, great stories, which I don't think is how most people view their time held hostage. Like one last substantive point, Ben, is that like there are many hostages still being held around the world. And if Trump wants credit for getting those folks out, he should, you know, welcome some more scrutiny about the times he has failed. For example, there was an American citizen named Mustafa Qasim who died recently in an Egyptian prison. I would like to know why Trump wasn't able to get President el-Sisi, who he has called his favorite dictator, uh, to release Mustafa Qasim. You know, Ben, you and I worked on, on some of these hostage-related issues together at the White House. You dealt with many more uh, of these issues after I left, including trying to help friend of the pod Jason Rezaian get out of Iran uh, and supporting the family of Kayla Mueller, who was taken hostage by ISIS and was tragically killed in Syria. On Thursday, I noticed that Kayla's parents are going to speak at the RNC, so there'll be more conversation about these issues. What did you make of this this hostage policy conversation? Well, uh, <laughs> I think it was misleading and cynical and dangerous. Um, it's misleading because, you know, frankly, as you said, 
there's always American hostages in other countries. Tragically, nobody has a perfect record of getting them all out. And it's misleading because what about the people that weren't freed? <laughs> what about the person who died in Egyptian prison? What about Otto Warmbier, you know, the American who was killed in North Korea? Right. And, yeah. you know, o o o Trump continues to call Kim his best friend. He's writing love letters to him. Uh, no more mention of Otto Warmbier now right. that it's no longer politically convenient for Trump to hold up that case. Um, the, the second thing I'd say about how cynical it is, is... You know, these families have been through something that, that none of us can imagine, a wrenching experience that, that brings up all kinds of emotions that I can only guess at and, and what that trauma is. And, and to take that emotion and to, to channel it into this kind of crude politics, to me, you know, is, is beyond disturbing. You know, and, 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 and look, we celebrated hostages coming home. I negotiated the release of Alan Gross from a Cuban prison. And yeah, at, at the State of the Union, uh, Obama referenced Alan Gross being there and everybody applauded. But it would never have occurred to us to like have Alan Gross go out and give a political speech like, in, you know, at the Democratic Convention, you know, renominating Barack Obama. You know, the, 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 this just kind of blows through kind of the boundaries of, uh, of what I think is, you know, an appropriate way yeah. of of dealing with a family's pain to, to channel that into some partisan political agenda. But here's why it's dangerous. The reason it's dangerous is that in the grand scheme of things, the U.S. government has an overriding imperative to protect the security of our citizens. And so therefore, hostages do become a foreign policy issue. But let's be clear here. It's not like Trump has solved major foreign policy challenges in, in getting these hostages out. But the message he's sending to every dictator around the world is, all I care about is being able to celebrate the release of some hostage as some great deal that I did. He's incentivizing the taking of American prisoners who can then be used to leverage things from the United States so that Trump can get people out and you know, trot them out for his political gain. I, I honestly think that why would you not draw that calculation if you're another country? Because, you know, it's not like Trump has gone to war with these countries to free these hostages. You know, it's it's been some some transaction that, that he's engaged in. And, and so to me, the sum total of this, it's an incredible encapsulation of how disturbing his approach to foreign affairs is. It's it's a complete extension of his domestic political interest. He doesn't really care about the people involved because imagine how painful it is for the families of those who have not been freed to have to watch that type of uh, demonstration at the RNC. And I, again, I, I can't stress enough how much I can, I'm worried that, you know, if there's a second Trump term, you know, God help us if there is, that he's sent this message out that like, yeah, as long as I can claim a win, you know, because I got somebody out, like then... I'm cool, you know, so go ahead, Erdogan, like wrap someone up for a few years as long as I get them back and I can brag about that. Yeah. I mean, just dark, dark stuff. It is dark stuff. And look, uh, crossing inappropriate political lines with foreign policy is like the theme of this thing because, you know, we're <laughs> yeah. recording, you know, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon tonight. Uh, insufferable, blowhard turned Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to speak. And so that in and of itself is unprecedented, right? It is illegal, unethical, and frankly, really weird to have a sitting Secretary of State speak at a political convention. As NBC News reported, 
One of three State Department political uh, legal memos on this topic says in bolded text that, quote, Senate confirmed presidential appointees may not even attend a political party convention. It is crystal clear. But then, of course, it gets worse. Pompeo is taping his speech in Jerusalem while on an official trip. So, like, we haven't seen his remarks yet, but he's undoubtedly going to talk about this recently signed Israel-UAE deal, just thrusting that back into politics. Um Pompeo's flax are pathetically trying to claim that he is doing this in his personal capacity and that the government isn't bearing any of the costs. But like, that is just ludicrous. The State Department has a plane. That plane flew him to Israel. He will be driven around and supported by State Department staff. He was apparently spotted filming something on top of the King David Hotel which means his backdrop will be the old city of Jerusalem. And that venue is as visually appealing to evangelicals as pool boys are to Jerry Falwell Jr. And so according to the Jerusalem <laughs> Post, Pompeo left Israel and flew to Sudan, where he's the first secretary of state to visit since Condi Rice in 2005. Um, the White House has suggested that Sudan could be next on the list of countries to normalize relations with Israel. Ben, what do you think about Mike Pompeo filming a fucking RNC video from Jerusalem? I mean, there's no bottom with Mike Pompeo, so I guess I'm not surprised. But to break it down, it is completely illegal and unethical. Um, I, how would 2012 Mike Pompeo have reacted oh if God. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had delivered an address to the Democratic Convention extolling Barack Obama and attacking Republicans while on official trip as Secretary of State? That tells you everything you need to know about the bottomless well of hypocrisy that fuels Mike Pompeo. Obviously, it is an official visit. Not only did he fly on that plane, but I can tell you from experience that the King David Hotel is where you stay if you're the U.S. government traveling to Israel. So that means his hotel room was paid for by you, the taxpayer. That means all the security infrastructure at that hotel was paid for by you, the taxpayers. The taxpayers are literally funding a political stunt for the Republican National Convention. And then let's get to the setting itself. I mean, for years... The, the sacrosanct words of, of APAC and, and other pro-Israel groups are don't politicize the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's meant to be bipartisan. It's meant to be about things that are bigger than petty partisan concerns. I cannot think of a more rote politicization of the U.S.-Israel relationship than the Secretary of State of the United States using Israel as a prop in the president's re-election campaign, using the old city of Jerusalem as a prop in the president's re-election campaign. And, and let's be clear about the audience he's speaking to, Tommy, as well, because it's not the Jewish state, and no, it's not even no. particularly Jewish voters in the United States. Donald Trump himself has said that the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, that that, that was for the evangelicals. <laughs> that was the phrase right. he used. Well, what is that for? It's because the evangelicals believe that Jews have to live in Israel, live in the old city of Jerusalem again, so that the rapture can come and all the <laughs> Jews can be converted to Christianity. The, the, this is the wink-wink that's going on here. So you're going to tell me that these are the people that aren't politicizing the U.S.-Israel relationship when they're literally using it as an alternative stage for the 2020 Republican National Convention so they can speak to a bunch of evangelicals and appeal to their desire to see all Jews converted into Christians when the rapture comes? <laughs> I mean, give me a break with this. It is. It is wild. Um, I, I'm going to go on a little soapbox for one second because this this dovetails with something that drives me crazy, which is candidates that try to do the right thing, be no more transparent or, or like put in place ethics or lobbying reforms get screwed for it. For example, our old boss, Barack Obama, decided to release something called Waves Record. They're basically White House visitor logs that tell you who's been meeting with who. 
Bush did not release those, right? In fact, progressive groups sued the Bush White House all the way up to the Supreme Court to try to figure out who Dick Cheney met with on his secret energy task force. It was a very big deal. Obama got like one day of good press for releasing these records. And then we spent eight years getting the shit kicked out of us every time some weird person visited the White House. Similarly, fundraising gets nitpicked to death, right? Candidates who don't take PAC money will deal with reports that say, well, you took money from people who work at the company, right? Never mind if it's some low level person or the CEO. My point is, not that the press should be nice to candidates, but like that relationship should be adversarial. It should be hostile. That's a good thing for like clean government. But if we want politicians to be more ethical and transparent, we have to create political incentives for them to do so. Because right now, Trump could care less about any of this. Half the RNC is being filmed at the White House, which is totally illegal. It's a Hatch Act violation. And this morning, Politico referred to the White House itself as a, quote, breakout star of the convention, noting it's good to be president. We have to stop judging illegal or unethical activity on style points. End of speech. And the reason it's so insane, too, is that if Barack Obama had done the same thing, they would not have granted him that, that you know, the White House is a star. It would have been a massive, massive scandal from the press because they know that Democrats care about norms. And so Democrats are more easily shamed. And so the press shames them. And they also know that Trump doesn't care. And so they go right along with the whole optics play here. And, and at a certain point, I mean... I'm going to use, I hate to do this, but I'm going to use a sports metaphor, Tommy. Like, Please. If, if, if Donald Trump is playing an NBA game and so is Joe Biden, and Donald Trump goes one for 20 from the field, and Joe Biden goes 18 for 20 from the field, that means that Joe Biden did a lot better than Donald Trump. But the way the press covers it is they'll cover like Joe Biden's two misses as equal to Donald Trump's 19 misses. You know, there's, there's this need to kind of, uh, in the name of balance, can kind of give equal weight to this stuff. So create huge you know, problems and scandals around arcane things that, that Joe Biden might say or do that Republicans seize on. And then suddenly, you know, we're giving a pass to Donald Trump politicizing the heart of American government, which he and he doesn't need to do it. Like there, there are plenty of places to go in Washington where he can give a speech. You know, yeah. so, so to use the White House or Jerusalem as a backdrop to their convention just shows how utterly corrupted our foreign policy is and our politics. And it also shows how incapable our news media is at, at processing that and, and communicating that to the American people, because most American Americans are not familiar with the Hatch Act. They wouldn't necessarily know that it's illegal and unethical and unprecedented to use the White House in this way. They have to be told that by the American news media, and they're not. Yep. And it's got to be like the lead of the story. Um you know, last sort of foreign policy thing from last night was, was former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley spoke. I got to be honest with you, man, I, like I don't remember a ton of it. She is one of those people who who seems to support and talk about uh, and, and reference a version of Donald Trump that doesn't actually exist in reality. I, I don't know if you watched her speech. Did you have thoughts? I mean, my, my only thought about this is that Nikki Haley is somehow kind of emerged like unscathed, you know, uh, in the eyes, I think, of like official Washington and the news media, like despite being completely consistent in her support for Donald Trump. And the other thing is she's kind of held up as this foreign policy voice, like this person who has credibility of having been on the world stage. She was the ambassador to the UN for like a year and a half. <laughs> you know, like this is not extensive foreign policy experience. And what did she do? Like, can anybody name a single thing that, what is Nikki Haley's big achievement at the UN? 
Like th- there is none. So, so this is another case of like, she's just kind of been granted this status as this person who's floated above the Trump scandals, who has this background of expertise in international affairs, when all she did was essentially serve Donald Trump at the UN during the year and a half in which he was taking a wrecking ball to America's reputation in the world, and then been a defender of Donald Trump ever since. So I, I just don't know why she's in this other category. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, let's move on from the RNC because, uh, Ben, we have some rare, unequivocally good news, which is that the Africa Regional Certification Commission has declared the continent is now free of wild polio. This breakthrough is the result uh, of a major vaccination campaign in Nigeria, which had up to 1,000 cases a year through the mid-2000s, and according to the BBC, accounted for more than half of all global polio cases a decade ago. The reporting on this subject can be a little confusing, right, because there's another strain of polio that can emerge from people who have been vaccinated. But the key point, the thing everyone needs to know is that if, if you get vaccinated, you're protected from all these strains. So universal vaccination is key, and it's how you protect these populations. Um, Vaccination campaigns have been difficult in Nigeria because there's a terrorist group called Boko Haram that makes parts of the country uh, very difficult to reach. Doctors also have to battle conspiracy theories alleging that the vaccine is actually, you know, an American plot to sterilize people. Maybe these uh, Islamist groups live in, in Orange County. COVID-19 made everything harder, right, because you couldn't travel. So this is a big achievement. Uh, The U.S. eradicated wild polio in 1979, which is also a great Smashing Pumpkins song. Uh, When the Global Polio Eradication Initiative was launched in 1988, the wild polio virus was present in more than 125 countries and paralyzed 350,000 people per year, according to the GPEI website. Now it's only found in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So we got to keep working on this, um, you know, vaccination efforts to eradicate polio everywhere because one person could bring it from Afghanistan to another country and we're off to the races. But huge credit to doctors, NGOs, funders like Bill Gates uh, and polio survivors in Nigeria who were key spokespeople to help encourage parents to vaccinate their kids. So good news. Fun to talk about good news. Yeah, no, it's great news. I mean, I, and we had the same challenge in Nigeria and I remember, you know, we, we tried a lot of different approaches, including reaching out to imams uh, who could go into some of these more rural areas and, and communicate to people in a credible voice. It wasn't, say, the U.S. government or some you know, foreign health official about why these vaccinations were safe, wh- why immunization was safe. It's hard, harder than you'd think to do that. Yeah. You know, if you're, you're living in a rural area without a lot of access to information, subject to a lot of conspiracy theories that vaccines are a Western plot, 
we've talked on this show, Tommy, about the kind of Russian information operation that HIV AIDS was somehow mm -hmm. a creation of the CIA. Well, that stuff permeated deep in Africa. So this is great news. And I think the other lesson of it, though, is that you can beat diseases. You know, you can fight and win these fights against diseases, which obviously matters in the COVID-19 yeah. context. It matters to HIV AIDS. It matters to efforts to try to, to, to take on malaria and, 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 you know, maternal death. I, I mean, I think the lesson here is that if you've got governments working with private philanthropists like Bill Gates, working with large NGOs and working with local populations, you can save a lot of lives. And it's in our interest to do that from a humanitarian perspective, but also from the perspective that, as we've seen, disease spreads, right? So yeah. uh, another reminder of the benefit of, of, of real international cooperation. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, okay, let's go to Belarus because there's still massive protests there. Uh, on Sunday, an estimated 100,000 people were in the streets protesting President Alexander Lukashenko and calling on him to step down. The super short version of the backstory, if you want the longer one, uh, listen to the last few episodes, uh, is that Lukashenko uh, is a dictator who has led Belarus for the last 26 years. He tried to steal yet another election on August 9th, and the people of Belarus were not having it, and they've been protesting ever since. So the good news, Ben, is it seems like security forces are cracking down less hard. They're not arresting as many people. There are fewer reports of, of you know, torture and abuse. But it is worrisome uh, at the same time that Lukashenko keeps arresting high-profile opposition leaders and acting in a really defiant manner. Like, state media keeps running videos of him, like, jumping out of a helicopter with a machine gun and, like, generally looking threatening, which, you know, in other words, means he could get a, a speaking slot at the RNC. But the, de the deputy secretary of state met with Lukashenko's opponent uh, in that most recent election, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. Uh, they were in Lithuania, where she's now in hiding. Just before that meeting, though, ominously, the Russians released a statement alleging foreign interference in Belarus. Uh, and I guess Lukashenko and Putin have talked at least three times in the past week. So, Ben, this thing's ongoing. Like, what do you think people should be watching as this situation evolves? Well, I think what the people of Belarus realized is that there's some strength in numbers, right? And so if everybody's turning out and if workers aren't showing up at work, if you know the state media channels aren't uh, the people who work there aren't showing up at work, that that they can't crack down on the whole country at the same time, you know, and and it's this kind of mass mobilization strategy that did work also for a time in Hong Kong as we saw. Um, so the, the the inspiring thing is that they've really internalized a culture of protest that has allowed them to keep the heat on Lukashenko. I think the thing to watch and to be worried about is if over time, you know, the the mass mobilization begins to diminish, Lukashenko may be waiting for a smaller number of protests to crack down on. You know, it's hard to, to go after hundreds of thousands of people. But if it, it shrinks to a few thousand in a few weeks, then those are the people that he might try to crack down on. That may not work, by the way, particularly if people are willing to go back on strike again and essentially paralyze the country in their insistence that there be some transition there, some credible election there, too. Um, but I, I'd be watching for, for does he try to wait them out and then crack down? Does Russia get more overtly involved, as we've discussed? And on this question of foreign interference, I think I was glad to see the deputy secretary of state meet with them. That's the right move. And, and I don't think we should be embarrassed by those charges. I mean, mm -hmm. like sometimes, you know, and I, you know, I think sometimes in the Obama administration, we were too worried about being tarred with foreign interference. You know what? It's the right thing to do to stand with protesters who've been totally screwed by a corrupt authoritarian leader who just completely stole an election. Yeah. And so have your meetings with the opposition. Let them say it's foreign interference and tell them that, you know, it's not. And the people turning on the streets clearly know it's not.
I was inspired to see the Baltic countries. There was like a human chain made. They went hmm. on for miles of people expressing solidarity with protesters in Belarus. Huh. If they want to call that foreign interference, if they want to call that NATO, fine, let them. But like, let's all do the right thing and support the people of Belarus here because you know they they've broken the fear factor in that country, and 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 you know hopefully they can keep pushing and pushing until they get the change they deserve. Yeah, agreed. And we will keep uh, covering this one because it's very important. Um, this story uh, is infuriating. It's a story about how Stephen Miller and Donald Trump's vile anti-immigrant sentiment uh, has seemingly infected every part of the government, including the State Department. So the State Department, Ben, is arguing in court that the daughter of two legally married U.S. citizens is not herself a U.S. citizen because the girl was born via a surrogate in Canada. State is pointing to policy written in the 1950s that says, quote, a child born abroad to a surrogate whose genetic parents are a U.S. citizen father and an anonymous egg donor is considered for citizenship purposes to be a person born out of wedlock, end quote. Of course, that policy was written before in vitro fertilization or same-sex marriage became legal. So the parents in this situation, uh, Rowie and Adiel Caviti, uh, are two legally married U.S. citizens who happen to be gay. In June, a judge ruled in favor of the Kaviti family, but the Trump administration is appealing because they are cruel, awful people. Uh, according to ABC News, Ben, at least two other same-sex couples are dealing with this same nightmare scenario where they could be separated from their own children. So again, just enraging that the State Department spends its time and money on this bigoted shit. Yeah. What possible justification is there for it, too? I mean, you know, like there's no... They're and they're to be clear like they're they're going out of their way. They're devoting resources. People yes. are spending time yes. on this utter bullshit. This this fight is over. It, it is legal for gay people to be married in this country, and and, and to punish people like this, you know, it, it is so petty and cruel. For what purpose? So you can kind of call up some some right wing leader in the U.S. and say, hey, see what we're doing. We're screwing this gay couple. Yeah. Like I can't think of any other reason to do it. And by the way, yeah. Like I have a lot of people I know who are still at state and, and I'm glad that people are sticking it out, but I, I, I you know, I would not work on this. I mean, no, th like th this is just gross. You want to you, you tear a 16 month old away from two U.S. citizens? <laughs> what, what is wrong with you? Why? And, and, why? and, and ju just say out loud the reasons why. Right. Because tell me why. There's no reason other than the fact that these, these people are LGBT and like, what, so therefore, they're not people. They're they're lesser people. They're lesser parents. I mean, it, it's astonishing me that we're even like having this argument. But unfortunately, as astonishing it is, I guess it's not because it's Donald Trump and Stephen Miller. Yeah, and Mike yeah. Pompeo. You know? And Mike Pompeo. Yeah, yeah. Have fun, uh, you know, catering to uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and the evangelicals from the King David Hotel on my dime. A um, couple more quick things. So let's turn to Mali. So last week there was a military coup in Mali. Uh, President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita announced his resignation just hours after members of Mali's military took control of an army camp near the capital, rounded up a bunch of top government officials and, and basically took control. Some citizens in Mali actually took to the street in support of this coup, uh, which came after months of protests. The coup leaders promised a transition to new elections, but I wouldn't bank on that quite yet. Uh, representatives from ECOWAS, which is a group of West African countries, are trying to negotiate a deal, but they're looking to return uh, President Keita to power, and it doesn't seem like he even necessarily wants that. So Ben, uh, you know, you and I did a lot of work on Northern Mali when I was still at the White House, a dangerous place. 
Al-Qaeda-linked fighters have been able to operate there pretty freely. Um, the U.S. says they are suspending joint military cooperation with Mali. Uh, the French say they're going to continue counterterrorism operations in Mali. Uh, the French have a much longer, much more uh, fraught history with the country. They controlled Mali and called it French Sudan from 1892 uh, until 1960. Uh, ben, you know, I remember all these meetings we were in about these threats emanating from Mali back in like 2012, 2013. What do you think the risk is of like a safe haven developing there? And like, what do you think the path forward is to get through this coup, to get to a transition? Like what entity should play a role? Is ECOWAS the right organization? Yeah. So, you know, Mali, uh, really the, what happened after that period of time when there was that spike in threats is that the French intervened um, and French troops went into Mali and the, the French, you know, the former colonial power was kind of a bit of the de facto, you know, muscle in Mali. Um, but, you know, it has the characteristics of kind of a failed state in that there are deep geographic divisions, tribal divisions. There's this Islamist presence and the French intervention was successful, I think, in dislodging a lot of those al-Qaeda elements. Um, but, you know, like a lot of military interventions, not successful in supporting the development of a cohesive government, right? And so I think this is just a, a place that doesn't really, ha- it's, you know, it's quite close to a failed state. And in, in that case, the military is often the strongest authority. And when a leader is kind of corrupt and loses popular legitimacy, the military steps in. So it's that formula. I do think that ECOWAS, an organization that a lot of Americans you know, probably <laughs> haven't spent a lot of time thinking of, Never, is, is uh, actually yeah. been somewhat effective on, on some of these cases. Um, I remember when we were in, in government, Tommy, you may recall Cote d'Ivoire, um, there was a leader who refused to step down after losing an election. ECOWAS really stepped in and helped resolve that situation, ensure a peaceful transition of power. So, you know, this can be an effective regional organization. I think the UN should be heavily involved, too. So if you have the regional authority in ECOWAS working with the United Nations and trying to figure out what the formula is to return to some form of elected government, but also to try to deal with some of the needs in the country to address the fact that not only do you need a frontman for the government, but you need a government that can actually function. Um, you know th- that that ultimately is going to be, you know, the long-term necessity. And and like it or not, the French are going to have to help play a critical role too. They're the ones with the relationships with the military in Mali more so than the United States. So I think it's it's the, the people of Mali, obviously, working hopefully with ECOWAS, the regional organization, the UN, and then the French hopefully playing a constructive role with the military. That That's what needs to happen. Yeah. Well, another thing we will uh, we will watch closely. So I wanted to talk to about a domestic issue in, in the US and how it maybe connects abroad for a minute. Because um, on Sunday, we saw another video of the police shooting an unarmed black man in America. This incident happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, a man named Jacob Blake was reportedly trying to break up a fight. The police arrived. But when Mr. Blake tried to get back into his car and leave, you can see a video of a cop shooting him in the back several times uh, in front of three of his children. So it is just absolutely horrifying and heartbreaking and infuriating, especially in the wake uh, of George Floyd's murder. So the good news is that that uh, Jacob Blake is in stable condition. And if you want to help out people who are now protesting in response, check out the Milwaukee Freedom Fund. But Ben, I want to raise this in conjunction with a 
really horrifying story I, I read in the New York Times recently about systemic police brutality in India. And because what the Times reported is that despite data that shows over 1,700 people were killed in Indian police custody last year, there have not been widespread protests or, or really any protests at all. And this was also true in India after George Floyd's murder, when you saw like global solidarity protests. Um, and, and they sort of identified the reason as being because the majority of the victims in India are Muslims or low caste Hindus. And the Times quotes human rights groups saying that despite the fact that prisoners in India are routinely tortured to death, there hasn't been a single conviction for that crime between 2005 and 2018. So I wanted to raise this issue because we need to end police brutality uh, in the U.S. to save lives, especially black lives. But we also need to get our shit together so that we have the moral authority to pressure governments in other countries and places to end torture and end extrajudicial killings. And like, once again, hopefully provide some sort of moral leadership on this issue, because I guess, you know, you've raised this point before, Ben, the moral leadership right now is coming from the protesters in the streets. And I guess that's something to be hopeful about, but it would be nice to have like, you know, the State Department actually doing it. Yeah. And and as you say, the starting point is getting our own house in order and showing that we can acknowledge what's wrong here in the United States and take steps to fix it, both structural policy steps, but also societal steps. Um, and then then that gives you some authority to talk about these things in other countries. And if you're talking about India, you first of all, you should follow, you know, friend of the pod, Rana Ayub on, on Twitter you know, because part of what's happening there is the breakdown, both the societal breakdown and the policy breakdown. In terms of society, it's impossible to know exactly whether Donald Trump's words, his ascendancy, the direction of the country under his leadership, how much that filters down into the mind of a police officer who puts his knee on George Floyd's neck or a police officer who shoots Jacob Blake in the back. But, you know, I think it's a pretty safe bet that there's there's some causality there. And in India, what you have is a Hindu nationalist leader, Narendra Modi, who, who, along with a lot of his inner circle, regularly engages in Hindu nationalist rhetoric, regularly diminishes Muslims. You've had the home minister in India refer to Muslims as termites, right, kind of dehumanizing language. Imagine the sense of impunity that gives to police officers, just as from a policy perspective, you're not seeing consequences for police officers who kill black people in some cases in this country. You're not seeing accountability for a police officer in India. So so we have to restore our moral authority. And then the, the question in these other countries is, can people take on both the societal kind of permission slip that is given for this kind of violence? And can there be policies put in place, maybe hopefully modeled on policies that are working here or in other places about holding police officers accountable for this kind of extrajudicial violence? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the, the targeting of these Muslims. I mean, the U.S., needs to do a better job of of standing up for Muslim lives everywhere in, in Xinjiang, China, in India. Uh, and then, you know, I was very glad to see that Joe Biden said that on day one, he will get rid of the Muslim ban. It was, I think, a pretty big oversight to not have a Muslim speaker in primetime at the DNC because you have such a, 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 a stigmatized community in the U.S. who I just think we need to go out of our way to acknowledge that treatment and, and to welcome them into the Democratic Party, you know, like bring people into our democracy as much as humanly possible and not treat someone like they're other or else, of course, they're going to feel that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, there absolutely should have been a Muslim speaker at the convention. Um, and also, look, I mean, the left has done a lot of work in this country, I think rightly, in highlighting the connection between the war on terrorism in this country 
and some of the things that have taken place since 9-11 in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is when you have this kind of hyper-securitized approach to terrorism in this country, but to Muslims in this country and profiling of Muslims, and you have the kind of rhetoric about radical Islam and the demagoguery about Muslims yep. in this country, from Donald Trump to Ted Cruz on down, well, you know, China, China. if you look at the internal documents that were leaked about Xinjiang province, about the imprisonment of a million Uyghurs, they were citing the U.S. war on terror. And right. by the way, not in their public justifications. This wasn't just PR. Like, they were citing that securitized totally. mindset. Totally. You know, and, and, and so if you think that the way in which the U.S. has conducted itself in the war on terror, and I was a part of some of that in the Obama administration, we have to recognize and wrestle with the fact that a Modi, a Putin, a Xi, you know, have drafted off of that in some of their actions. It, it, I'm not justifying what they did no, based course. on what we did. And what they've done often goes far beyond anything we've done. But we do have to realize that, that there are unintended consequences to this kind of hyper-focused slash obsession with terrorism and the way in which, particularly in the Republican Party, it's drifted into painting Muslims with a broad brush. That stuff has that stuff travels, that stuff goes overseas. And and that's why the Democratic Party needs to do better and be better, you know? And I don't care if it's not great politics to have a Muslim speaker for, really? You're telling me that, you know, and I'm not suggesting that this was the calculus, but if someone were to make the argument that, well, everything we have to do has to be about winning this election, well, it's also about standing for something. And I I don't think like a a minute or two speech from a Muslim American was going to affect the election either way. I think that the point is we have to model the behavior we'd like to see in this country and around the world. Yeah. And I also think there's a lot of Muslim voters who we should be reaching out to and and trying to encourage to be a part of the process. Because, yeah, you're probably not going to vote if you feel like the Democrats and the Republicans both ignore or or worse stigmatize you. So, you know, it's a political lesson there too. Uh, last thing, I'm just gonna do a quick roundup of China news because we're kind of running out of time. So first, uh, CNN had this fascinating piece about a satellite photo that captured what they think was a Chinese submarine entering or exiting an underground base in the South China Sea. Uh, it's worth checking out because it's more of a visual story, Ben, than for podcasts. Uh, second story, Colleges and universities are worried that students in China and Hong Kong who are remotely attending classes in the U.S. could be subject to China's national security law. That law basically gives Chinese authorities very wide latitude to prosecute people for essentially talking about subjects they don't like. So this is a big deal. Colleges are worried about, you know, someone in in Hong Kong streaming a course where they talk about Tiananmen Square or Tibet and that being recorded and used to prosecute those students or the teachers. It's forcing schools into this horrible place where they're either going to have to self-censor or figure out a way to protect these students as they do their work. And then the last thing we saw Jordan Waller, our our excellent producer, flagged this. Chinese regulators are waging a war against food waste. So it includes penalizing kids who have too many leftovers on their plates to the point where they might not be eligible for scholarships. That seems a little intense. Uh, It is a a way of going after people who overorder at dinner to be polite or to show off for their relatives. Uh, And then it's targeting a Chinese internet fad called Big Stomach Kings, where people live stream themselves binge eating. Uh, Ben, don't take Xi Jinping to Coney Island for the hot dog eating contest. Um, This does dovetail with, you know, some floods and farms that have been ruined and, you know, potential long-term concerns about food shortages in a country this big, but uh, it was an interesting story. Ben, any part of that you want to you want to jump on? 
Well, on the last piece, I'm going to use it to plug Missing America. Yes. You know, we, we really, in this episode, we really break down the kind of social control that the Chinese are starting to exert on everybody's lives, you know, largely through technology. But, but the degree of kind of micromanagement of the citizenry in China is really mind-blowing and I think goes beyond what most Americans are familiar with. Um, and this is, you know, yet another example. On the students, I mean, it's a, it's a tough and tragic circumstance. There's no easy answers. I, I hope that there's a way to address some of these issues over time that doesn't just inevitably lead to no Chinese students kind of studying at American universities. Because in the long run, you know, that, that's, that's bad for everything. That, that, that's bad for the United States and China avoiding conflict. That's bad for the United States forging people-to-people connections. That's frankly bad for human rights in China if they're kind of walled off from people in the rest of the world. So my hope is, as hard as it is to navigate, that colleges and universities kind of earnestly try to fight a way through um, and it'll be easier when people aren't doing this virtually, obviously. Um, and the goal should be to maintain this extraordinary linkage between Chinese students and American schools. Yes. You know, any sort of cutoff of, of you know, educational exchanges, I think, would be a, a huge problem um, and something we've talked about before. So hopefully that does not happen. And this is an extreme situation uh, relative to COVID. But let's be honest, it is probably not. Uh, but that is enough uh, for the new section today. When we come back, Ben is going to have an interview with Tapita Amaral about life in Brazil under Bolsonaro uh, and dealing with COVID. So you will not want to miss that. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Okay, I'm very pleased now to be joined by Tabata Amadel, who is a member of Brazil's Congress. I met Tabata a few years ago in Sao Paulo before she was elected and could tell uh, she was on her way to great things. She's a a politician to watch in Brazil, a hugely important country, um, and we're really glad to have her with us here today. So thanks, Tabata, for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It's an honor, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So... um, here we are. Uh, we're both uh, in some form of, you know, lockdown. Um, and Brazil, uh, you know, like the United States, has had a, a lot of challenges uh, with COVID. Brazil passed 3 million uh, cases and over 100,000 deaths. Um, and there's still a lack of testing, I know, in parts of the country. Um, how, how would you describe, you know, the, the experience of COVID in Brazil and, and the government's response to it? Well, unfortunately, it's not very different from what you are living in the U.S. We have a president that has a lot of authoritarian inclinations, and he made a a very um, dangerous, a very sad choice 
not to do anything to fight the pandemic. He saw the pandemic as an opportunity, a political opportunity. Uh, he has, for the last few months, he has been putting uh, the population against the Supreme Court, against the Congress, against uh, governors and uh, city mayors. And he has been saying that it's just uh, a small, a little flu, that people shouldn't worry about it, that people are going to die anyway, so he can't do, so he can't do anything and that we should only focus on the economy but he's also not doing that in that sense so um he literally we have an expression in portuguese that says that he crossed his arms because he thought it was the best uh, political strategy and in some way it is working uh, people are, are really angry at what is happening uh, we have lost over a hundred thousand lives we have almost 30 million people unemployed and the next few months are going to be even harder for Brazil because it's more than just uh, a health crisis. Uh, we have a lot of people that if they stop receiving the emergency um, benefit that they are receiving now, we will fall into poverty and extreme poverty. We know Brazil is entering an economic recession and we have this huge political crisis. So what makes me... Uh, angry and what makes me sad is to know that all countries have to uh, to face uh, the pandemic but brazil is suffering so much more than it was needed if we had a leader that recognized it, that it was a real crisis that should be fought since the very beginning i'm sure we wouldn't have uh, lost so many lives yeah and we would be in a very different situation right now and what is what is public opinion like? Are there people who who agree with Bolsonaro's approach and just think, you know, reopen everything and kind of wait this wait for this to go away, or is is he facing a, a significant backlash there? So we had two different moments in the pandemic. In the beginning, uh, he lost some. Um, he started losing approval and support because his declarations have been very inhuman. So like a few days ago, he said something like, uh, we just need to go through that and like me move on. We're gonna lose some people, people are gonna die, but there's nothing that we can do. And uh, he makes a lot of jokes about our deaths. And he, in a very uh, homophobic statement, he said that uh, um, the use of masks are something for um, gay people, but he said in a much worse way. Yeah. And even now that he was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, uh, we would see him like talking to uh, poor people and he has been causing many agglomerations. And we got to the point that a judge had to rule over the fact that he needed to wear a mask. So those things made people very angry. But in the last few weeks, we have actually uh, been seeing uh, an increase in his approval rate. And that's what makes me sad. And I, I interpret this data as he winning the, the narrative. Yeah. He told people that if they cared, if we cared about the pandemic, our economy would be destroyed. He did nothing to stop the pandemic. He did not to aid our economy out of uh, 10 um uh, laws or uh, things that were passed to fight the pandemic. Nine came from our Congress, which is a very odd thing. And now people are seeing that the economy is actually in a bad situation. 
and they say, oh, Bolsonaro was right. Uh, it was best to have saved the economy. And, you know, we, we obviously have a similar <laughs> debate happening here. One, one issue that's getting a lot of attention here is schools. Um, I know you work a lot in education. Your background was as an advocate on education issues. Um, what is the state of the debate about reopening schools in Brazil? And what, what would you like to see happen in terms of uh, uh, the education approach uh, during the pandemic? Well, um, education has never been a priority in my country. And in the last year and a half, things have gone much worse. We had two ministers that were very much engaged in the cultural war that is so important to the government, but who did not advance one single education policy in almost two years. And so things are already hard in education. And during the pandemic, we know that most of our students do not have, have access to um, remote education. Some of them uh, don't have access to anything. Others are in a very precarious situation because Brazil is a very unequal country. We have um, millions of families who uh, share uh, a small house with many family members who don't have access to internet. And we haven't had classes since March. So uh, as, as, what, as what happens with other things in this polarized world, we now have a polarized debate about education. On one side, you have people who say, oh, the pandemic is nothing, so we should just return uh, to classes. And on the other uh, side, we have people who say that, uh, well, we should just cancel the, uh, all the classes until we have a vaccine. But uh, there were two important studies that show that um, around one third of our high school students consider not returning to school. And that's what scares me the most. Brazil has a very bad dropout rate from high school. And I believe things are going to turn out much worse after the pandemic. And so we have to find a complex solution to this complex situation. I don't think uh, we have the option of just waiting for the vaccine, because if we wait so uh, all those months, I'm sure we're gonna lose a lot of students. And this has a huge economic cost for us, but more than that, uh, uh, the dropout rate causes us a huge social cost. Yeah. So we have to find a way of uh, bringing back the students who, who can, uh, maybe um, building a hybrid system in which some of the classes, some of the students are online, the others are, um, are present, are in class. And it's really hard when everything's so polarized, and especially when the federal government is doing nothing. Uh, we asked formally if they knew how many students were enrolled in some type of remote education, and they said they don't know. Yeah. And we asked them what they were doing uh, for education in the pandemic, and they just answered that that was not their responsibility. So that's how our Ministry of Education behaves right now. So in summary, what we need is to have a plan to build some time of hybrid system and to say that our priority should be the poorest students who are at home without internet right now. And especially I've been working on a, on a law project for uh, some time now to provide access to internet and equipment to all students in public school. We are doing that uh, without the help of the government, 
but I think we'll be able to pass an important legislation on that in the next few weeks. So it sounds, again, uh, to the Americans who are listening to this, uh, there's so much that's familiar. Uh, obviously, Brazil has some, some greater challenges, like you say, with access to the internet. But, but in terms of the, the pandemic response, in terms of not really caring about the people affected by it, um, you know, Bolsonaro and Trump uh, have more alike, uh, you know, than any other two leaders really in this pandemic response. I mean, do you, do you, do you feel like they, they watch each other? <laughs> and uh, I mean, obviously Bolsonaro was, was with Trump right at the beginning of this in March. I mean, how much do you think Bolsonaro uh, you know, uh, models himself after Trump, or how much do you think the, the two leaders kind of influence each other, or do you think their politics just lead them to do the same types of things? Um, Bolsonaro is a big admirer of Trump, um, unfortunately, but I do think the relationship is on equal terms. And the, uh, when we watch closely U.S. policy, it's very clear to us that uh, this admiration goes from one side to the other. And it's really bad for Brazil because um, Bolsonaro chose one uh, an authoritarian, um, very inhuman leader for him to watch. And that's why Brazilians in general are very much uh, interested and in following closing the U.S. elections. We do believe that what happens in the U.S. in this year, and I'm hoping that the elections happen when they should happen. I, I'm, I've been following this discussion. This is going to be very important to Brazil and to the whole world because we are going to question whether um, populism, what, regardless if it comes from the left or the right, um, has some place to survive in the next few years. So if I just could uh, make this request for, the, for our audience, <laughs> you have no idea how important your election is going to be to our future. Because, again, we have been talking about all this uh, irresponsibility of the Bolsonaro government with the sanitary crisis, with our education system. But we could also be talking about all the authoritarian steps that have been made in Brazil. Yeah. And Brazil is a very important country in the region. And when we look to other countries around the world, Hungary, India, um, I'm very scared. I believe that uh, when we look from very far away, Things are always getting better in our society, but I'm really scared of what is happened, what's happening in this particular moment. And with the pandemic, what COVID-19 does is to expose and to deepen uh, all our inequalities. So things were already bad in education. They get worse with the pandemic. Um, Brazil is a very unequal country. So we see now indigenous, black people, poor people suffering and dying much more at a higher, higher rate with COVID-19. So we have some important fights in the next two years. Yeah. Aside from the, the COVID response and how that has heightened inequality, what are the, the authoritarian steps you know, that are most concerning to you that, that, that Bolsonaro has taken? So um, there have uh, been a big fight between the government and the Supreme Court. And a few days ago, we had uh, this breaking news say that um, Bolsonaro considered to take out, uh, to get rid of our current uh, ministers in the Supreme Court 
and to have a new selection, which is, would be a huge attack on our democracy. Uh, and even uh, we have been had a lot of attacks on transparency. So for a few days, uh, we couldn't uh, have access to the data of how many people had died of COVID-19 in Brazil. And now we have to, to follow the work of some journalists who are putting this data together. Uh, we, Bolsonaro and his ministers were sued because of all their um, sexist declarations and all the attacks that are being conducted against those who disagree with the government. I myself have been uh, a victim of this um, gen uh, gender violence. So what they do, they are funding a, a huge network of fake news, uh, funding it with public money. Um, there's a lot of evidence in that to, to basically shut up those who disagree with the government. And just one more thing that's important to say, uh, there have been many uh, attempts to intervene in our federal police because there are many um, corruption scandals and investigations around Bolsonaro and his sons. And as the investigations got closer to the family, he actually changed a lot of the people who, uh, who direct our federal police, which again, another attack on our democracy. So in this situation, how would you describe the Brazilian opposition? Um, you know, because obviously we've come through a very tumultuous period in Brazilian politics. The party of the left, uh, of Lula and Dilma, you know, is subjected to a lot of investigations, imprisonments. You, uh, you know, are kind of part of a new generation that isn't tied to the old party structure. Um, but, but how would you describe who is the opposition in Brazil, how you work together, um, and, and, and what the, the prospects are for, for a different kind of leadership for Brazil going forward? There are two main challenges. Uh, the first one is to make all those people who are Democrat, who, who are Democrats, who are in the opposition to the Bolsonaro government, to talk to each other. Uh, the last election um, was really hard, was really polarized, and many people uh, is in, uh, still insist on pointing their difference than what unites us. And to be very sincere, Ben, I, I don't know how we are going to get to 2022 when we have our next election. Because um, putting those people who, for me, have so much in common together to talk is really hard. And especially because we have a huge gap of leadership in Brazil. We had great leaders in our country. When we talk about Fernando Henrique Cardoso and Lula, I think they represent two different worldviews, but people who are important to our country. But their parties and what they represented was uh, did not do a good job of forming new leadership. So you see now a lot of young people uh, who form movements, such as the one that uh, I have co-founded, of which I am part, but there is a gap between those two generations. And people in the in the oldest generation uh, don't seem to be having a, to be doing it very very well in terms of talking to each other. But there is a, a bigger challenge, and that's the one I've been focusing the most, which is talking to those who support Bolsonaro. We have a strong one third of the population who still thinks he's a good leader, who still thinks he's a, an important 
uh, he's doing a good job. And more than that, uh, we just had this uh, research that was released that showed that if the election was today, regardless of who Bolsonaro was competing with, he would win the election. So it's more than just uh, unite, uniting the progressive uh, parties, the progressive leaders. It's more about talking with those uh, who still support Bolsonaro. And in that, we are doing a bad job. Uh, those people are dismissed as fascists, as people you shouldn't talk about. But again, I, I really don't think that one third to half of my country is made of fascists. No, those are people who are, are not, don't see uh, our traditional leaders answering to, to their demands. And I think this is the same problem in the US. And maybe you can say more about that. If we don't talk to such a big amount of our population, we're going to have a, a very big problem because only one side of the political spectrum seems to be listening to their demands. Well, and one solution I know you have, and this is the last question I really want to ask you, is is an effort, I mean, you're in your 20s, Tabata, you're, you've got a huge future ahead of you, but I know you're also trying to encourage other young women in particular to, to run for office, which can be part of the solution here uh, in, in, in bringing in new people and, and the type of people who can reach uh, broader audiences. I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that effort. Um, I know you, you have an organization you're launching, uh, Bama Juntas. Did I get that right? Um, and um, uh, and you've written a book about this. So so uh, what, what are you trying to do to make sure that it's not just you, that there are other young women that are able to get into politics? Well, uh, this is a big investment in the future. Uh, I, I'm sure you know about it. But there was this uh, research that showed that when we are talking about the fight of the COVID-19 pandemic, women are doing a much uh, better job in any sense that we look to. So I do believe that a, a politi uh, when uh, women, black people, young people, uh, poor people actually occupy their, their place, their space in politics, we start to have uh, a, a political scenario that actually produces solutions to everyone, and not only for the group that is usually represented in politics. So Vamos Juntas, which will be something like, let's go together for a woman, it works better in Portuguese, but uh, it's a super party national movement to get more women involved in politics. So right now we have uh, 51 leaders from all over the country, we have uh, pre-candidates who are transgender, who have disabilities, who comes from all sorts of paths and who, are, uh, who have this disposition to transform their local reality through politics. Uh, we have a lot of violence against uh, women in politics in Brazil. We have had uh, female political leaders killed in the past, in the recent past. Uh, Marielle Franco is one of... Uh, uh, one of the biggest examples of that. So we have a lot of our work to do with this woman, uh, fighting all the violence that they face, uh, make sure that they have a chance, even though their political parties won't give them any support. But I'm sure uh, when I, I listen to those women that our future, our near future is going to be so much better. So I hope that with more women and just a, a more diverse politics, things are, gonna to, are going to look better for our future. Okay, well, that's a, a hopeful note to end on. Thanks so much, Tabata, for giving us such a, a, a good insight into what's happening in Brazil. And, and we wish you a lot of luck and hopefully we can get our election right <laughs> so that uh, America 
gets back to not uh, setting the wrong example um, to the world here. So good luck. I hope you stay safe and well and I and, uh, hope you continue to be successful in your, in your efforts. No, thank you so much, Ben. I know things have also been very hard uh, in the US. So we need to be strong. We need to be resilient. And just to know that things are going to get better, but we need to fight for that. And looking uh, very closely, uh, I'm watching very closely the U.S. election. Great. You need not to. <laughs> it's very important to us, and you should know that. I know. Well, well we all have to stick together. So uh, good luck, and it's great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks again to Tapita Amaral for joining the show. Uh, ben, thanks to you. Thanks for missing America. I don't know. Anything, anything else uh, distracting you these days? My latest book is a really depressing bio about Alan Dulles, the, uh, I think the, the first CIA director who was just a horrible person, literal Nazi sympathizer. So I, I don't know that I should be picking up these awful, depressing books. Jordan is going to hammer me for, for going into a dark place again with my, with my reading list, but I don't know if you got anything better. I mean, I, I went on a rabbit hole of reading about the Dulles brothers, uh, once before and it's pretty dark, you know. I mean, the stuff that the, way worse than you think. Yeah, and the stuff that the U.S. government thought it was okay to do in terms of kind of coups and covert operations, uh, you know, uh, I think really does stand out to me. The, the book I read is called *The Brothers* by Stephen Kinzer. Um, Stephen Kinzer, a great progressive journalist and author. Um, if people want to, you know, uh, peel back the curtain on the Dallas Brothers, uh, that's 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 one place to go. It's a good one. Uh, here's a great show if people need something that will make you feel uh, enormous joy. There's a show on Netflix uh, called Love on the Spectrum, which is about people with autism dating. And it is it, the perspective of the show is like so generous and, and humanizing. And you sort of like you, you go with folks on good dates and bad dates. You learn uh, about how you can teach yourself social cues and learn to react with people. And everyone's from Australia, so they all have great accents. It is one of the best, mo- like kindest, um, most uplifting shows I've seen in a really long time. I just couldn't recommend it more. It's just great. It's great. What's it called again? Love on the Spectrum on Netflix. Love on the Spectrum. I'm, I'm, I'm going to check that out. I think Anne will love it. it you, will, you will feel better about humanity when the show is done. Well, yeah, I... Um the only plug I have, too, is I got a book sent to me a week ago by um, Julia Gillard, you know, who was prime minister of Australia. So may- maybe we'll have to have Julia Gillard on to, to have our second yeah. uh, prime minister of Australia. But it's it's women in leadership, realized real lessons. And what they, they what she does is she profiles a whole bunch of women around the world uh, in terms of how do they deal with the you know distinct and unique challenges of of being women leaders, but also it's for, for, for dudes like us, it's a window into the additional challenges and complexities that, that women face in the arena. So uh, I'm going to throw, throw out that plug, Women in Leadership by, by Julia Gillard. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. And, if, and by the way, if any, if any world doesn't want to have fun, Google Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott speech. Oh, yeah. The, do you remember this takedown she, she did ass. in the Australian Parliament, where she just basically lays into this kind of right wing buffoonish blowhard about what a misogynist she yes. is for for two three minutes? And the reason the rabbit hole is fun is it's so awesome that it's become a meme in Australia. So you can also go and see all these Australian women who basically made their own videos cut to Julia Villard's voice nice. of them, like kind of getting ready for the night, or that. And so it's a good it's a good rabbit hole to go down. That's really fun. It's so fun to like 
dip into some other country's meme that you don't understand yeah, yeah, at yeah, all exactly. unless you have the backstory. You kind of understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Okay. And, uh, you know, just, you know, Michael Martinez uh, uh, slacked me that he's going to watch Anaconda this weekend. So we got more. We got recommendations <laughs> we go. from, from all over. So this is great. Um, all right. That's it for us today. Uh, thanks again for tuning in. And uh, subscribe to Missing America. And we'll talk to you next week. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. Hot Save the World is mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our amazing digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes, videos every week.